Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Gola. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. We are so excited to thank all of our many supporters on patreon.com backslash Golapod, especially at the level of Ghiotti or Ghiottoni. Those of you who have joined us at those levels are supporting not just the content that you're hearing here, but more new and exciting developments that are on the horizon, including Gola on the Road, which is both a real thing that we're doing as in going on the road and a television series forthcoming. We are also developing some merch for all of the people who have asked us for eel t-shirts and more. And we have many new collaborations coming up. We can't wait to share them with you. If you aren't already a patron, jump on, become a part of it. Let us give back to you as you give to us and support us. We thank especially our ongoing patrons at the Ghiotti level, Semolina Artisanal Pasta and Mazzulo in California. And Katie, who else do we have with us? Ali and Gino of Fiorella in Rochester, Fiona Fine, and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City. Katie, we are not in New York City, however. We're in Prati. We are in Prati in Rome together, recording new episodes for our new season. We have been telling everyone about all of our adventures, and we will continue to have more adventures to share with you. But today we're going to roll it back because given our location, we thought we would do a little bit of a deep dive. And Uh, by location, you mean we're in Prati, mm -hmm. which is just a 10-minute walk from the decomposed corpse of the subject (laughs) of our episode. I assume that's what you meant. Well, some people might have departed from St. Peter's Basilica as the kind of point of reference rather than, yeah, (laughs) decomposed remains. But in either case, you're correct. We are next to the tomb of a very important historical figure. She happens to be also a woman, which draws our attention because we are taking not just any deep dive, but a proper Dr. Caligari-style medieval deep dive to Matilda of Canossa, a woman who wielded power in an extremely unusual way, shaped the political history of much of the Italian peninsula, and has some interesting connections with both the way people ended up enjoying wellness on the peninsula that will become clear in a minute. And uh, as we'll talk once we get to the end, a, uh, a little bit about the regional differences in cuisine, foodways, and uh, other elements of our gastronomic discussions that now we can connect, hopefully, to a richer historical political history. Exactly. You know, when I was studying Italy in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. Social political history, by the way. I I just said historical history. Awesome. It's all good. (laughs) You know, sometimes we just got it. 
Yeah. Sometimes we don't got it. Sometimes we're back from lunch and a little tired. I, I might have done well to have half a glass of wine, but you know what? Fatal error. Yeah. No glass of wine at lunch on a Friday, no less. No less. Oof. But, you know, you get what you deserve. That's true. And now I live with that, that punishment <laughs> and shame. <laughs> well, let's get through this together. I wish I could hold your hand across the table, but we are... We're, I mean, we're finally trying to get some proper audio for people. So we're going to go ahead and, and <laughs> wait to hold hands until later this afternoon exactly. when we're done. After we wrap, we'll have wine and handholding and uh, some time to decompress and think about how much we love everybody who listens to us. And in the meantime, let's give them something worth listening to. Yeah. And this is also like the subject today, Matilda Di Conossa, has been a cliffhanger, right? Because like a year and a half ago, we promised you that we would do this deep dive into this historical figure who has had such a huge impact. But when I was studying Italian history, I stopped at Constantine, honestly. And this is like, it sounds like a joke. It's not a joke. I was like very, very interested in Rome in particular, the development of the city. And then when I moved here 127 years ago, I had to learn all the other stuff. But I didn't learn about Matilda di Canossa, even though I walked past her resting place in St. Peter's Basilica basically twice a day back when I was doing... Vatican tours, currently retired from that uh, gig, by the way, um, unless you're Kim K, in which case I will make take an your, exception. <laughs> I will make an exception. I will take a, I will take your selfies or I'll take whatever your <laughs> photos on the people altar is fine. Um, so the woman that we are uh, featuring today, like she came to power when she was nine years old. Can we get can we talk about her early life and what we know about it or don't know? Well, I Yes, we definitely can. I'm going to take a hot second to situate things for people because as the resident medievalist and um, the only one for, I think, at least several hundred meters in any direction right now, uh, I take pains to make sure that people understand that between ancient Rome and Renaissance Rome or um, Baroque Rome, the the kind of later historical moments that people often point to when they think of the most magnificent um, architectural and artistic uh, creations in, in the Rome or greater Roman area or even within Italy more broadly, the space in between actually did matter for one thing. And um, in more than matter, uh, a lot happened. And although we have a tendency, a pop culture tendency now to uh, refer to that as the dark ages or as a bad time or an undeveloped time, a primitive time, there's a lot of connection between the word, word medieval and primitive, an idea that this was a moment of lack of culture, a moment of lack of communication, no movement. And it's not a coincidence that we're talking about this right now, not only because of our uh, geographic position, but also because of the mo- the historical moment we find ourselves in, right? At the end, hopefully, of a plague, or nearly, if, if we can be so optimistic, of a plague. And plague and Middle Ages seem to go hand in hand. Although, as you know well, Katie, uh, plague certainly didn't come up in the Middle Ages. It, it, uh, it wasn't like a new trend. It was not a new trend. And it certainly didn't end with the Middle Ages. Not just, uh, I'm not just pointing to COVID. Uh, well, well into the 18th century, there were frequent um, epidemic level and even depending on your epidemiological uh, kind of scaletta, the uh, pandemic level outbreaks of disease that continued to haunt 
uh, daily existence and cause all the trouble that we have now all lived through. Um, this is not a medieval reality. And none of the other things that people tend to tag or attach to the medieval are exclusive to that time. Vice versa, a lot happened politically, culturally, and uh, and and in our minds, uh, important something that's very important and close to my heart, of course, um, and gastronomically, right? We are always in our episodes talking about the longer history, where things came from, where they started, when they when the timeline kind of breaks and goes into different directions and no longer has anything to do with that. The uh, high and late Middle Ages in Italy was not a time where people were only eating rats and dying and then getting thrown onto those, you know, little plow uh, containers of corpses that got dragged out. <laughs> no. There's got to be a technical name for it. There is actually. But death shovel. It's that's it. You found it. Well, I mean, not to interrupt you, but no. I just have to say, like, she think over she's on it. I know a bunch of stuff happened after Constantine, and it is Absolutely. the most for me. The Middle Ages mm-hmm. way more cool and interesting than even the Renaissance. Like I could live without it, honestly. <laughs> but um, one just has to stroll through Santa Prassede. Uh, and gaze at the St. Zeno Chapel or Pascal's uh, beautifully commissioned mosaics in the in the uh, in the apse there, and you will just be stunned at the level of culture. And that's just what you can see. There's all this stuff that you can't see that was destroyed to make way for other things in Rome and other parts of Italy. Though I would say, in terms of medieval nuclei, uh, Rome is not a very good example. Though there are many, especially in northern Lazio, so not a super far drive from where we're sitting right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, I mean, no question. Rome is known for these other or associated with other historical moments because those are moments where the development remains visible to us, whereas a lot of the medieval infrastructure here is not quite as apparent. Florence is a city that I spend a lot of time in and it's not just in an effort to break down your spirit and force you to love something that you have sworn to hate. It's also because it represents one of the city centers where the medieval reality is is still present and visible. So anyway, um, you know, that's, that's a long story short. We love the middle ages. They're sick as fuck. We we're into them. We are so into them. We're into them also because of how wacky things were, right? It was a moment of transition. So the, this idea of calling it the middle ages is anachronistic for lots of reasons. And actually just a term that was thrown on it by, um, historians to kind of contain something that felt unwieldy, right? It's a cool way um, to make a shorthand word for 1,000 years. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, you gotta, you really have to have some set on you to be like, eh, that's the middle part. And yeah, the middle part. Let's just keep also, going. The, a whole millennium. <laughs> exactly. And just keep moving right along. So, you know, what's what's happening in Italy in the Middle Ages? One of the reasons why the the this term was both so broad and nonspecific is because it's really hard hard to come to zoom in on any given part or to paint with a wide brush things that are, that are happening here. But it's important for us to spend some time with that because that is what gives rise to all of the things that we continue to think are worth looking at later on. So 
if we even just limit ourselves to food, what's happening in the Middle Ages is what give, lays the groundwork for all of the diversity and possibility that comes later. The exchange with the uh, Near Eastern and Far Eastern world at that time, with the greater Mediterranean, with Northern Europe, products coming in that weren't available before, and a, a rising amount of within limitation, but a rising amount of uh, of capital available to people who weren't at the very, very highest echelons of society, trade expanding, literacy expanding, uh, people moving around more. And, you know, with that, their products and ideas, right? And that's, uh, and, and that's what, you know, gives us our backdrop here when we come to the figure of Matilda of Tuscany or of Canossa, depending, you'll see her referred to. In, I call her the great Contessa. I just call her my best contessa. Um, she, uh, in Italian, is usually known as Matilde di Canossa, uh, which is actually an Italianization of her of her Latin. Um, but in any case, she's born uh, around 1046. So we are right in, we're in the transition within the transition, right? Because we have the high Middle Ages. Sometimes we call that a Carolingian moment. And in Italy, there's a lot of Norman presence. There are a series of other um, of tribes that are uh, still around that have broken off. There are splinters of the uh, what was the Roman Empire, which is now being coalesced slowly into the Holy Roman Empire. They're not the same thing, but they are related historically and, the, and politically. And then there's also what's left of the eastern half of the Europe, of the uh, Roman Empire, now uh, the uh, Byzantium into Ottoman. And uh, things are wacky, right? And Matilda is born in a moment where things are very hard to project into the future and where political hegemony is not a guarantee, even a best case scenario. Okay. I learned the word hegemony in 1998. <laughs> That's a long time ago. I know. It's a really long time ago. But it's like, it's one that like, so basically political political primacy, hegemony in- is the, the expression of a dominant Force. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking okay. of it. And, and it, call, call it coherence also, right? Like bringing together. So, okay. I'm going to be checking in on vocabulary words that yeah, I totally learned just in time it. for the SATs <laughs> and then promptly forgot. I'm not a well-read person, Danielle. This is a lie. But in any case, I <laughs> I understand. I, I run in circles where people throw around big words all the time and forget that they're so big because they're just so used to being jargony and difficult. But also, let's talk about what, what that means in a concrete way, right? You've got all this trade going on. You've got Normans in the South uh, who are perpetuating this very culturally diverse uh, civilization that was uh, pioneered by uh, Arabic culture in the Lower Peninsula in Sicily. And then you've got lots of little, I guess you would call them kingdoms. I'm sure there's a diversity of words like, is is a duchy? A thing, yeah. Duchies are, are on the uh, coming later. Okay, c- coming soon to to an Italian peninsula near you. So when Matilde di Canossa is born in 1046, somewhere in like Lombardy or Tuscany, mm-hmm. maybe unsure, what? Like who's in charge? Who's doing stuff? Who's the who's the hegemonizers? This, so this is right, this is the big question. In fact, that's that's the question that will end up guiding her life and making or, or setting the stage for her to become a major player. Um, the two big players in Matilda's life, and whom we can certainly point to as among the most, if not the most relevant on the European continent at the time, are the would be Holy Roman Emperor. 
the fourth, Henry the fourth, sorry, I'm saying because they actually, depending on which historiographical tradition you come from, the Henrys have different numbers. Oh, I, uh, it's, it's not so great. complicated. <laughs> it's, very, it's, it's not great. Um, anyway, uh, Henry the fourth and then um, Pope Gregory the seventh. Now, it's, oh, this guy's a big, big, yeah, important guy. This guy's a big, important guy. There's so there's so, there are a lot of Gregories also. Don't forget. So oh, hell yeah. Don't, don't forget. You know, we're going to don't don't get too excited. Gregory the 13th is the one that a lot of people think of. He's got the calendar. He's got a lot of things. I think there on. were two more after him, too. Oh, I yeah. might be wrong. There's okay. a, there are several. <laughs> right, there. Um, in any case, uh, we we're looking at at a moment where the papacy is not necessarily going to be the point of reference that it will become later. And it's it's important when you're looking at moments like this to remember that we, you know, when we look back, it's very hard not to bring with you what happens later and invest what you're looking at with the certainty of what would ha- of what would happen. So a pope at that time doesn't know that in another 500 years, popes will be, will have great military strength, will have incredible political alliances, will have amassed huge amounts of wealth. Not to say that the the papacy at this time doesn't have a a lot of that already behind it, but the the resurgence of the, and the the kind of centralization of the church, particularly post-Reformation, is not going to be part of this reality. Things are a little bit dicier in general. Same thing on the side for the emperor, right? The Holy Roman Emperor now is uh, being crowned over in a, a, a kind of bizarre puzzle, unfinished puzzle of Europe. There are properties all over the place in what is today now Germany and France and beyond. And through, contiguous or not contiguous? Not all contiguous, many not. Um, many, in fact, the, a big problem here will be the fact that the northern part of the Italian peninsula is a break in that would-be uh, streamlined map. Um, speaking of going down to the south, uh, the one of our other favorite guys, Frederick II, who will eventually hold his, hold his court at Palermo, or it will be an itinerant court, but kind of make Palermo the point of reference for his uh, seat of political power, uh, is the Holy Roman Emperor, but ruling from Sicily and moving mostly through the south of Italy, um, forming the kind of backbone of his political cultural um, program on a very a high highly uh, Arabicized kind of conception of self and power and uh, and influencing that space hugely in that way, while ostensibly also ruling over all of these kind of Germanic uh, territories that yeah. are, you know, similarly kind of all over the place. Yeah. So a it's hu- also wacky. a huge yeah. coastline within yes. striking distance of all <laughs> corners of yes. the, at, at least at that time, uh, strategic world. Yes. Meanwhile, the Pope is living in a malarial, snake-infested swamp with a river that's not navigable mainly into its mouth. And so really isolated, leveraging the fact that he's the vicar of Christ on earth to command uh, in spite of the the real complexities of just like existing day to day in Rome. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not have uh, given a better or more succinct account myself. The uh, the spaces that we're talking about 
become defined differently later. And so we have to kind of wipe that that later historical map out of our minds for a moment and put ourselves into an Italian peninsula where Italy does not exist yet. It's not even a glimmer in anyone's eye uh, at this point. It's a, it's a geographic space that has some cultural affinity, but it is not anywhere near having any real kind of coherence or, um, or or continuity. The uh, linguistically, it's very different. The uh, various political powers, even if we boil them down just to the big ones, are still many and diverse. Um, there is not a lot of. Uh, or I should say, uh, some of the kinds of difficulties that we might imagine in a, a, a moment like this in terms of infrastructure and navigability more generally are as challenging within the peninsula as uh, beyond. So that, uh, speaking of, you could be in Rome and more trapped and isolated uh, in, within the city of Rome than perhaps in a, uh, a growing would-be maritime republic like uh, what will come to us from uh, arise in uh, Genova and Venice, for example. It's a very different place. And within this very different place, we have the birth of Matilda of Canossa, who is very strategically positioned in uh, more ways than one. She is uh, heir to, uh, or a would-be heir. Now, this is another place where things get complicated. We'll try to probably keep things to a, a dull roar on the side of uh, dynastic I mean, concessions. we are 30 minutes in and we've just gotten to the birth <laughs> of Matilda. I know. In this 17-part series, you'll be treated to Danielle talking for no less than 99 minutes about investiture controversies. <laughs> no. Uh, what we will say is that she is in the north center part of Italy. So, uh, her family's territories include what is today Lombard Lombardy, Emilia, Romagna, a lot of Tuscany, and um, a little bit uh, beyond uh, those con those current borders. She is very literally in between the Pope and the Emperor. She, her, the family's territory sit in between that. She um, gets married the way that you have to at that time if you're a well-born woman, and uh, she has uh, two marriages that uh, the first one ends uh, actually both and with her basically being like, no, thanks. I need to go somewhere else. How, it's kind of a long story. How also. old is she when she gets married and what are the guys bringing to the table? Um, okay, so the um, for, oh, so here's another like pretty good thing to point out in terms of the the kind of distinctions that we sort of lay onto the Middle Ages and don't necessarily understand. Um, people in the late Middle Ages and uh, early modern period did not get married when they were children. You may have wedding contracts. Uh, that are signed when uh, people are still at that age. That's because those are perceived in a very different way. The understanding is that the families are going to be unified, that there's going to be an economic development as a result of it. It may have political consequences. So you have uh, betrothals at that age. Yeah, so you have to start planning for the eventual exactly. marriage. Yeah, not hugely different from things that happen today with families that have a lot of power and money, to be sure. Let's keep that in mind. Um but uh, Matilda is born in 1046, and her first marriage is in 1069. So we're not looking at someone who is a child when she marries, but she is a child when uh, she starts to have to begin to imagine how to manage the territory that will eventually come to be in her possession. And that isn't guaranteed to be managed by 
uh, that, that by her own hand, right? Because at the time, we are still in a patrilineal situation where the expectation is she will marry and that the actual uh, rights to those spaces will be uh, held and uh, maintained by the, the male partner. Matilda, then, I, I'm going to move things along because there's a lot to say. Can I slow um, you down for one second? Because yeah. I'd like to know, when yeah. she, does she just like have an annulment? So um, what ends up happening is, so she, in the case of her first husband, we have uh, his, whose name in Italian, it's actually just as bad in both languages, Godfrey the Hunchback. It's hot. Um, yeah, the gold bow in Italian, it's kind of harsh. Matilda, we know, has left him by uh, 1071. It's not entirely certain what happened. We know they lost a child, and it may be that, uh, again, a thing that we have a tendency to kind of uh, lay onto the Middle Ages Right, that no one cared about all their, ha- right, all their deceased family members have, and children. They didn't have feelings, that they didn't, you know, on the contrary. Um, yes, there was a different level of expectation in terms of infant mortality, but uh, there are many, many uh, well-documented cases of people falling into horrible depressions after even something like an early miscarriage. This Again, the same way that um, different people perceive and live uh, those experiences differently at this time. Uh, the loss of their child may have uh, led uh, her to decide that she didn't want to be with him anymore. Perhaps he reacted badly to it. Perhaps she did. It's not clear. We know that she goes to live with her mother in the way that you do after a bad breakup. I'm going to my mother's. I'm going to my mother's and and don't call. And uh, Godfrey tried to call and she did not answer. Um, (laughs) We know that there is a short period during which he kind of fights to uh, reinstate their bonds. And he actually, again, the way you would, tries to make an ally of her mother and of the Pope because the Pope is involved in their business already, being that they possess territories that block or that either, depending on how you're looking at, either protect or uh, are under threat by the by the empire or the, the, the emperor in this case. But in any case, he uh, ends up giving up at a certain point and Godfrey is killed at the uh, at the hands of someone who seems to have had something to gain politically. It's all pretty blurry in a lot of ways, which is suspect. Mm. But in any case, what ends up happening is that Matilda now uh, lives with her mother and they create this incredible, this truly incredible, what we call and what I love to call, especially because one of my uh, dear friends and brilliant scholar, Melissa Swain, calls co-rulership. And uh, so she, they live together in Italy, back in Italy again, um, having uh, moved through their northern territories and Matilda in that case, especially with Godfrey, finding herself more in what is today around Germany. Uh, They're back in Italy and her mother uh, starts to do the thing that you do when you want to uh, make sure that your daughter has a good life. She starts introducing her to people who can help her in the future and who can make sure that she's well-positioned and uh, safe and comfortable, but also maintains her pretensions to uh, holding on to her family's property and the power associated with it. After her mother dies, uh, Matilda actually does inherit her everything because there's no one else to get it. And this creates a 
a series of complications. Everyone, I I imagine everyone was super excited (laughs) that there were no male heirs. (laughs) And then they have a big party and everyone's like, this is the chillest thing that's ever happened. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody's like, totally fine. Don't worry about it. Just let this lady hold on to all this really important territory and wealth in between where the emperor is pushing down into the peninsula and where the pope is pushing back up against. There was little to be done at this point. She occupies the territory. It's clear that she is the heir and that there is no other rightful contender at this point in time. And uh, she manages it incredibly well. She uses her connection with the Pope, which later becomes more than a connection. Uh, He actually moves into her fortress at Canossa at a certain point. They exchange letters that we still have that are written in the informal tone. So that is to say, if you know Italian, the tu versus the lei. Ooh la la. Yeah, it's pretty, it's salacious. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. And the... The, the, the tone of their exchanges uh, is extremely informal. Familiar. They they are, they become familiar with each other. And if Katie keeps whispering like that, <laughs> this show is going to get an explicit rating. We know that they spent a lot of time together alone. Her fortress at Canossa is a place, if you have a chance to visit it, I would recommend it. If you're listening right now and you have the internet in your palm, uh, look it up. It is a, uh, a literally formidable building. That's where the idea of fortress comes from, right? Um, it is located in a part of the uh, of, of central northern Italy that if you've been to anywhere around there, you'll be familiar with the fact that a dense fog is likely to fall on the territory at any time. It's, it's incredibly unpredictable and it's uh, so intense that you really can't believe you if you're driving you'll have to pull over immediately to the side of the road no no amount of newfangled headlights will help you it's um still today with all of our fancy technology it can become um, unnavigable matilda is in this fortress in an area of italy that's very hard to get to for a variety of reasons the emperor has, because of his a, a series of other political intrigue going on at the time, and again, there's so there's a lot of detail here that we're going to elide, um, but suffice to say, is in a fight with the Pope that uh, ultimately results in the Pope deciding to excommunicate him in 1076. Now, is what, you know, is this a big deal? Well, we're talking once again about political precarity, right? So, if the emperor felt good about his possessions and he had a lot of the landed gentry behind him and he didn't feel threatened by the other uh, pretenders to the throne, it's not a big deal. But he doesn't at this time. And the pope similarly is threatening on the back of the fact that it it weakens the other person who could who who forms a threat to him. So they're they're both kind of playing with the chess pieces that they have, and Matilda's right in between them. And Matilda, hosting the Pope at the at at her fortress, um, manages to broker a deal between the two of them. Henry comes to uh, the fortress. He in in the parlance of our times. Uh, bends the knee to the Pope. He has his excommunication lifted as a result of uh, his uh, session of of uh, ultimate power to the Pope over even the imperial throne. And he goes back 
um, hoping that things will, in theory, hoping that things will uh, work out now. Um, actually, what is happening is that Henry is planning further incursions into the papal territories and just being a general rabble rouser. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so I just Googled Canalsa on a map to yeah. ensure that I knew where it was. And we're just in this area that's like southeast of Parma, southwest-ish of Reggio Emilia. That's a famous food place. Do we have a sense of like, so Henry comes down, he's bends the knee. Then do they like break bread? They've got, they've, like, they have a party. They drink Lambrusco. And like, what's going on? (laughs) So the... Food connection here is actually going to come a little bit later, and it's really going to come as a result of what happens as a result of the very unexpected close relationships Matilda forms, especially with the Pope, but also with other major political players on the peninsula. And what ends up happening is, and again, we're skipping a a bunch of detail here, but we'll we'll, we'll get here to uh, speak about the good part. Uh, when it comes to the kind of long-term effects here. At the end of her life, Matilda realizes that she's going to die and there's not going to be a resolution to this problem. The imperial forces are always, uh, and uh, adjacent interests are always going to be pushing down into her territories. Uh, the Pope is always going to be pushing back and uh, this the space will be forever contested and at best uh, a battleground. So what she does is, she turns to the histor- the legal historians she has amassed at her court and asks them to look back at precedent and to find a way to come up with something that can allow her territories to find some kind of peace and protection. In part, she herself goes around and starts investing in abbeys and other religious properties of of various different positionings in terms of their their clerical status and giving a kind of sense of community and a kind of um, a, a network of pilgrimage sites within those spaces. She also has, uh, ends up finding a, a loophole and her court legal historians help her to research Justinian code and to through Is that, that the pandects? Uh, yes, that's part. That's it's it's part of a, a, a huge revival of of all kinds of um, different uh, understanding of, of judiciary procedure that comes to them from the time that you are familiar with, Katie, way back. Oh, yeah. Also, I feel like pretty smart because I went to the Vatican museums yesterday for the first time in 10 years and I was in the um, uh, School of Athens room and you've got just beside the window, you got the Justinian code being presented and then Pope, I want to say like Pope Julius II's face Uh on like Mm -hmm. another Pope's, but I don't, I don't remember. I forget. forget. Justinian was there. I can't be bothered with the Renaissance, as I told you. I only care about things up to Constantine and then through the Middle Ages. I quit I quit in 1450. Honestly, I can't I can't be bothered. I can fill in some later stuff too if anybody wants to know. But the the long and the short of it is by returning to this deep past, Matilda uh, finds a way to create two things. One, a a guarantee that her inheritance of this territory would be fully recognized. And then two, the possibility to make the decision on her own behalf as a result of that to to free this space, essentially, to give them auto rule. This maybe sounds, okay, kind of cool, right? But 
it's so much more than that because it's not just a kind of progressive understanding of a, people in their own space should have some say over uh, how their land and lives are managed. It's laying the foundation for what would become the communes of central Italy in which will be born people like Dante. Ever heard of him? Well, if you haven't, you should read my book and I'll tell you all about it. The rich cultural atmosphere that uh, gives rise to the Italian language, to the, the that kind of cultural continuity that lack, that was lacking at that time, to the development of, of civic spaces and citizenship and ideas of belonging that were there, and then to all kinds of trade and exchange, more, more generally, that include the development of things like regional cuisines and the kinds of, of uh, foods that you're thinking of when you go to Canossa and will be able to enjoy. And uh, an attachment to those spaces, right? Yeah. A feeling of caring about that and of having things like a Parmigiano Reggiano, which exists because somebody from Parma has a pride in that space and being from that space and having a product that reflects that reality and that deep history. So it's a very long walk. And I, I hope that we didn't lose 100% of everyone here. But it's it's everything in a way of uh, that we need to start when it comes to talking about Italian identity, and then the things that we consume that are part of that identity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it is that power move to say you think it's tough to like have one person with an army dividing you. Try many, many, many cities with their own armies. Good luck, buddies. Good luck, bro. I'm going to die now. And guess what? People are going to fight over my body. (laughs) You're goddamn right. So, you know, I... First of all, I don't think we lost anyone because this is the most interesting topic. And I think I asked all the salacious questions that people were dying to ask and be like, oh, but then what happened? Did they have annulment? Like what was like going on in the bedroom? Oh, the Pope? Mm, yum. So what's so super cool about this is that, you know, as you say, like Parmigiano Reggiano, like literally has the main city's name in it. Uh, many other products do as well. And we as you know, as visitors to these places, we we need a common nomenclature to call them by, right? Emilia-Romagna is one of my favorite examples when we talk about regional uh, identity, because it's not a single region. (laughs) It's two distinct cultures that have been essentially lumped together for consolidating sheer numbers of people so they could have greater gravity on a federal level in the government. But even within Emilia, you have yeah. very, very different cultures. And like Bologna, technically not Amelia. It's kind of its own thing going on. Yeah. Um, it's got its own sort of food culture that would be recognized as distinct from that of Parma and Piacenza. And, you know, when you look at Canosa on a map, what's so cool is like you've got like a really crazy litany of incredibly sophisticated places that we learn about because of yeah. the, the Renaissance, late medieval and Renaissance activities going on there. None of that would have been possible. You'd think you'd be going to like Verona to kick it if it wasn't for Matilda. <laughs> Hell to the no. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And for that reason, um, she, uh, as we said, her body was considered worth having in the way that um, people in the high and late Middle Ages really just love to have themselves a relic. And she is uh, first interred in it, within her own territories and then later lifted to be moved to a tomb dedicated to her within St. Peter's Basilica. A big deal regardless. 
uh, crowned with a a, a magnificent militarist sculpture of her by Bernini, whose sculpture work you'll be familiar with if you've been anywhere in Rome for sure, but certainly to St. Peter's because his embellishments are the um, most important and most visible. And she remains the only woman in the central apse of uh, St. Peter's till to this day. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's certainly a stone-based proof of her <laughs> impact and one that we can actually see and yeah. reflect on. But every time you take a little bottle of balsamico tradizionale di Modena or a little bite of Parmigiano Reggiano or like fill in your regional, hyper-regional delicacy, Matilda did that. So say thank you or better yet, grazie. And on that note, send us your questions about what went on in the Pope's bedroom with uh, Matilda. No, JK, (laughs) don't do that. We don't. Do you know, actually? I... You're just implying the the, the level of familiarity. Yeah, I can. I we can look back. Um, A a wonderful uh, friend and colleague of mine, Michelle K. Spike, wrote a book about uh, Matilda uh, that you can read. It's very readable, easily accessible through your local bookstore, or if you must, Amazon. You can find a lot of information in both English and Italian on Matilda's life. Her the documentation of her life in archives is fairly robust, and so we do have a lot of her um, personal correspondence. Again, very interesting. Not a lot of women were um, handwriting things. She um, has a an insignia. She has a, a recognizable official signature that she used on her personal documents, um, and so we can go back to the words that she exchanged herself with the Pope and with others. There's a decent amount of uh, of that uh, of extant, as we call it still remaining documents. And there is a decent amount that you could you could um, fairly extrapolate from those exchanges. Whatever the relationship was, it was intimate, familiar. It was certainly one of true friends, I would say, if not also a sexual relationship. And uh, that already suggests, I mean, all manner of uh, of challenge to our expectations about what was happening at this time and how people interacted uh, with each other, right? So that's by itself, I think, worth looking into. Thank you so much for this. I could listen to another 17 episodes, each 99 minutes long. But in the meantime... Grazie, Daniela. No, grazie a te, Katie. I love to talk about this stuff. Maybe we'll do some more historical figures and general deep dives into things like this to give context to all the delicious food and wine that we're usually talking about here forward. La bene. All right, uh, guys. Ciao. Arrivederci. We love our supporters and hope you become one too by visiting patreon.com backslash golapod.